0: If something is smarter than you, then you don't get to know how it causes your world to end any more than the chimps do or the cockroaches do. But even if cockroaches are robust and resilient and have lasted a long time, and if AI is never created and it's just humans, we are probably the end of the world for them eventually in an amount of time that is basically an evolutionary eye blink.
1: Hi, this is Jack Liebig. Baseball player and second grader from St. Louis, Missouri, and you are listening to the Vance Crow podcast. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm glad you're here. Today, I sit down with Michael Vassar. Long time listeners of the podcast know that he might be the most visited guest I've ever had. I wasn't really anticipating to interview Michael, but he happened to be in the St. Louis area, so of course I was going to invite him to the studio. We sat down and Michael had a lot he wanted to talk about regarding Palestine and the Gaza Strip and Hamas and Israel and what was going on there. And we had a really interesting conversation, not least of which because I don't actually buy into the point of view that Michael has. And we you'll tell throughout this conversation that we have not conflict, but certainly different points of view as to how you should feel or what way you should engage with this massive event that's going on in culture. I think this is a really good interview, not necessarily because we discovered anything new, but because we had a conversation where two people came from different points of view, and we got to explore the way the world works from our different perspectives. So we're going to get to that interview in just a second, but I am really excited about the last few weeks of Legacy Interviews we have actually recorded almost a dozen interviews and every single one of them is completely unique. We've been going back and editing them now and I realize that even though we send people the same list of questions that they should prepare for, each time they sit down in the interview chair, the interview and conversation goes in completely novel and unique directions because whatever your loved one shares with us about their childhood, their career, marriage and parenting, or even the wisdom that they want to leave behind We'll explore their answers by me asking them follow-up questions. These follow-up questions make each conversation completely unique and oftentimes gets them to think about stories and experiences they've had that they haven't thought of in maybe the lifetime that they've had since that moment happened. If you're interested in having me sit down with one of your loved ones to have a unique conversation that captures their life and stories so they can be passed on to future generations Go to LegacyInterviews.com to find out more. All right, without further ado, let's go to this wild interview with my man, Michael Vassar. Michael Vassar, welcome back to the podcast. Good to see you again, Vance. So I uh, opened up Twitter this morning, and it seems like now everybody went from being a Ukrainian expert to being a Palestine-Israel expert and uh, they all have very, very strong opinions that uh, are beating the drums of war. When you look at what's going on with Gaza and Palestine and all of this, wh- what do you see? Well, as to some degree
0: a Hegelian expert, I have the sense that from the philosophy that was a major part of Israel's founding, unfortunately, war is probably good for Israel and its future, whether or not it makes sense um, from any sort of ethical perspective, or whether Israel wants it, it seems to me like they've been sort of forced into it, and they have declared war. And it seems that that's a shame for the Palestinians, and at least in the short term, it's a shame for them. It's probably going to increase the amount of terrorism, not decrease it, I would guess, over the medium term, etc. But it's I mean, from the perspective of, like, the global order, I vaguely think it's probably a good thing, as, said, as that is to say. But I'm much more... Wait,
1: wait, wait. Why? Why, why, would, why would war in any context be th- that way? So, like, it's... Well, war
0: does drive various types of technological advancement that are useful, and it helps people to understand what new weapon systems and new types of conflict, how they work. I feel like it's been, like, a fairly long time since we saw, like, what state-of-the-art military technology can do in these sorts of situations we're going to see in the future. I mean, I hate to say it, but job production, that sort of bullshit, which is, like, in the short term, I think, probably stabilizing more than, like, destruction of property, which will then require more construction contracts, etc., to fix it, is destabilizing. I mean, I it's obviously... Israel's, it's sad for Israel, they've lost 0.1% of their population, or 0.01% of their population all at once, which would be like 10, you know, nine-elevens for us. And um, they are, you know, as necessarily going to fight a war as the U.S. was necessarily going to fight at least a war against Afghanistan in nine-eleven, And like, you know, they much more have to do that, that to, to protect themselves than the Americans did after at 9-11. Like, the continuing actions of Hezbollah would present a much more clear, unambiguous, both 10x larger relative to their size, and more obvious direct-on-their-border threat. If they didn't do something like this, it's like absolutely 100% something that every country in the world, in their situation, other than Costa Rica, which doesn't have an army, would do, it, you know, it probably makes their security position in some ways better. The, the bad thing for them is the ways in which it moves them towards being authoritarians, to be embroiled in wars in long for long periods of time. And part of what I'm hoping we can talk about is Hegelianism and authoritarianism. And I mean, in the long run, it is very bad for anyone's character to be occupying people it creates a lot of um, bad incentives and habits of intellectual justification and sloppy, moral sloppiness, et cetera. But to some degree, I think also, from the perspective of Israel, it, it makes them, it more clear to them where they stand. Is What parts of the world are willing to stand behind them when they're attacked this flagrantly and not deny them? The types of self-defense that every other country in the world would be assumed to engage in, without the slightest possibility of criticism.
1: That's an interesting thing. That that uh, it will be a mechanism to sort out who stands with who, and how strongly they stand, and like how much of a check are you willing to write? Whether that's literally, are you willing to write money and send arms to Israel, and how much are you? Willing to not interfere and say, "Oh well, you know there's no limit to um what you can do as a response that will tell you who your friends and enemies are at least currently
0: like one thing I would feel really hopeful about is if not just Israelis but Jews across the world get across the picture that Harvard is their enemy, they're declared." Dire, vicious enemy, far more hostile to them than the most leftist American politicians, far more hostile than to them than Palestinian politicians, all of whom make statements
1: in their support, while Harvard refuses to. This is like a, a shocking non sequitur to me. So you, you come out of nowhere with Harvard. How, wh- where is this oh, coming oh, from?
0: Oh wow, I'm seeing this all over Twitter. I, in the okay, so the there are all there's this Harvard letter. That is Harvard's official statement condemning the um, Hezbollah attacks.
1: I heard somebody describe it as milk toast. So I saw, like, Harvard came out. But who cares what Harvard says about, you know, a, a terrorist attack?
0: Oh, but you, if you're tracking, uh, first of all, it seems like people... Okay, so to some degree, tracking how people talk about Israel, regard is inevitably giving you some information about the anti-Semitic pe- currents in society, which I talk to people most often on the right who talk about their horror at the anti-Semitic currents bubbling in society. The relatively intellectual people, like James Lindsay, have been talking about Nazism, you know, every time you get behind closed doors, basically, among reason- sufficiently radical, sufficiently intellectual and free-thinking uh People on the right talked about that on Twitter. Uh, Eric Weinstein talks with me about how, like, and Malcolm Collins, about you know similar things. Eric Weinstein talks about how he, in one closed room, was open for questions. And the first question he was given was about the Jewish problem or the Jewish question. So and these are people who are Jewish themselves or very close. I don't know if Lindsay is, but Eric definitely is. And Lindsay is a mathematician, very culturally connected, I'm sure, to a lot of Jewish people. They're people who are generally themselves sympathetic to Jews and anti Nazi. People are being very, very brazen It when, as long as you get even a little bit outside of the herd, even a little bit free thinking, like the sorts of people who they're interacting with, about, from an authoritarian perspective, it's very natural to ask, well, all the things we've ever heard in life are lies. We've always heard the Nazis were the worst. Maybe they're the good guys. And you know. When you see people like Robert Kennedy talking about hinting in his closed-door meeting and then getting it leaked, that maybe the Jews and Chinese developed COVID as a bioweapon together against everyone who's not Jewish and Chinese, Um, and then it's obvious he's always supported Israel. It's also obvious that he doesn't personally have an anti-Semitic conspiracy theory because he is such a paranoid schizophrenic conspiracy theorist. And you would know very clearly. But he is finding himself, because he's trying to appeal to the right, not just the left, and to intellectuals and radicals, not people who are part of a herd, to at least anti Semitic vibes and insinuations of a draconian sort. Uh, we're not seeing him appeal to Nazi insinuations, as far as I can tell. Pro Nazi and anti Semitic are reasonably naturally separable. Um, but like, what I hear from the people who interact with the parts of the right where conclusions get reached, decisions get made, congressional staffers, you know that sort of thing, is that you know that's very much the intellectual current. But it's really important to realize it's the intellectual current in the left too. Um, you, Yale's Jewish enrollment has, according to an article I was just looking at, fallen from 16.9 percent to 10 percent or less than 10 percent in just the last uh, Seven years. That's not because Jews decide they don't want to go to Yale. It's because Yale decides it doesn't want Jews. Harvard's the same. They make continually more extreme divergence from the mainstream intellectual authorities and mainstream official story in our society uh, towards openly biasing things against Jews and Asians and claiming they don't
1: need to justify themselves. I mean, like I'm living in the center of the country and I'm oriented just in a totally different way. But I've had uh, a really great guy named Isaac Amon come on and he talks about anti-Semitism. You're talking about it. I don't see it or hear it. It is as common to me as hearing something about, I don't know, some, some uh, people in Mongolia. I hear it just as much about those two groups because it isn't anywhere on my, on my scale. So it's hard for me to, to say one way or the other anything of what you're saying. The only thing I know about what's going on with Israel is that there was just an attack. So to me, this is like brand new on the scene.
0: Okay. So you've talked about your occupation of the well-actually layer, an interface. And that probably isn't a part of the intellectual world that talks about these things in the way that people who Eric Weinstein and Malcolm Collins and James Lindsay are talking about. And since they're talking to Kennedy a lot, also people who Kennedy is talking about with. These sorts of people who are engaged in the intellectual stew of society and not just uh, receiving orders or transmitting information the way you are from the output or interface between that stew.
1: So to clarify, we're talking about a graph. There's a video of it. I can probably link it in the show notes, which is where I'm describing how do ideas flow out into society. And they really work like a stock tip, right? There's a small number of people that know something, let's just say something about uh, GMOs or or organic. And then over time, as those ideas spread, they spread out and uh, they go from a few people knowing it and being really valuable ideas for whatever that value means to spreading out to society and not having as much value of knowing it first, but just this is what everybody knows or what everybody believes. And the well actually point being when it hops from being in an intellectual group that that kind of specializes or focuses on something to the the guy at a party that he's listening to what everybody's saying and he interrupts and he says well actually do you know this thing and that's where you can kind of tell there's a cultural tipping point that an idea has become accepted or or at least one that people just kind of you know Except as this is the way things are
0: so like that guy at the party who's saying well actually is making an ego claim a status claim he's also delivering sort of commands about this is the thing you're supposed to start saying right now and he is like a doctor or someone who's like one notch up the social pole who the person still might socially interact with or no you have taken this to a to a new level yes so like that person is the first person i think in the intellectual process that's transmitting the idea from the language of ideas to the language of material or cybernetics or most so you're saying these ideas of
1: anti-semitism are up the graph to the extent that somebody like me that's further down the graph it hasn't hit that point where regular society is talking about it if you hear about it in the news it's a vague concept but not one that's well
0: it's a little bit more like Nazism that denies that it is anti-Semitic but says that it's just asking questions, and you know, there's something real peculiar about those Jews and that Jewish success, and which is both questioning whether that Jewish success is due to something like the Nazi story, and also the Nazis were kind of the good guys, and also questioning whether that Jewish success is due to something that we should imitate and try to get in on, maybe it's a opportunity, like, it, it's sort of of the, the, the graph in the intellectual and revolutionary or radical part of the right. But by that, I mean the sorts of things that Gavin Newsom calls micro-cults, giving examples like Jordan Peterson and Joe Rogan, who actually have, like, 100 times, or in Joe Rogan's case and 40 times in Peterson's, the Google Trends attention of a Gavin Newsom. So, so part of the issue is that the whole of what counts as mainstream is determined by relatively small people, up not the intellectual graph, but the administrative graph. One of the things about your position is that you talked about an energetic landscape. And I think that the energetic landscape is a separate thing from the intellectual discourse space. The intellectual discourse space has many tiers, but the tiers co-opt ideas from one another. And the people who generate the ideas don't have any authority over what final decisions get made in that space and get handed over to the authority space.
1: So let me pause so people can stay connected with this conversation. So if you understand the well-actually graph to mean like, There are ideas that a small group of people have, but eventually those ideas can filter out into society. So maybe a few people knew about how to make a GMO, and then a GMO goes out into society and it becomes a part of our diet. So eventually it's down the graph. Well, not all ideas are up one graph. It's actually a series of mountains. Just picture a mountain range where the further you go up, there's people with a specialty, a special knowledge about something. It could be artificial intelligence, genetic engineering different things going on in culture. And you're saying one of the graphs that's out there that's pretty powerful is an administrative class. And this is where there are people that control the the what goes on with laws and how those laws are enforced.
0: So I feel like, I mean, I used to talk about a much cruder theory I called, like, the six mountains theory before I had this sort of differentiation between the intellectual process and the authoritarian process. But, like, you have a—my idea was that you have basically the government, you have basically finance and money, and you have basically the media. And those are, like, the three things that have power at the top, and the the things that that have real power, power on a much different scale. And then you have, like, other smaller things like religion and organized crime and— various ethnic interests, etc., that have their own hierarchies, but their hierarchies are pretty clearly subordinate to the government, financial, and media hierarchies. Today? I mean, for the foreseeable past, going back like 100 years and more, you know, it would have been less corporate 100 years ago and much more uh, bourgeois capitalistic. You might say that the government defeated the bourgeois capitalistic power structure and replaced it with a corporate administrative structure. Um, You know, that's... But, like, the government and the corporate structure, it's the same administrative structure. It's the same hierarchy that you wait in and get promoted slightly vertically at an angle. uh, And just if you stick with the game and... Submit and give up your individuated mindset for a long enough time while you're in it. Uh, you're known to be safe with authority by the time you're on top, and you're put in authority. But of course, that means that you're just a hollowed-out husk that once was a person. It's now just a set of <laughs> We habits. were talking about before yeah. this show
1: that I had a professor one time, a guy I respected a lot, who used to say, "Oh, if I had only stayed in the Chinese government and waited for twenty, twenty-five years." I would be at the top now, and all you have to do is just go there and you know get your day job done and don't cause any problems. And his advice to me was get into corporate America, and when you do, don't even worry where your job is because if you wait twenty to twenty five years, you too will will get into a position of power, and that's what you're restating. Yeah, in a but much you're, faster
0: I'm, I'm stating si- it in the context of you're talking about how having an individuated mind sucks within corporate America because then you're being continually targeted and turned against by the non-individuated minds that you're surrounded by and are being held back by and waiting to give up your individuation so you can start your journey of being checked out and vetted as safe. And so
1: how does this then get back to the the Gaza-Israel situation we were talking about before?
0: Okay, so that's a... Really long but important story. Before we go there, I wanted to briefly mention that you can see from like statistics and media sources the authoritarian, non-intellectual part of the anti-Semitic movement. That's on the left, not on the right. You can see it in the difference between the statements of different people throughout the world and throughout Congress and throughout different organizations on Gaza and can see that say, th- things like Harvard uh, have been defending and fighting for their ability to overtly discriminate against Jews and Asians, and have in fact drastically reduced the rates of both being admitted, and drastically reduced the absolute rates of Jews being admitted over the very recent past. And you can see that they've also escalated drastically over the very recent past calls for uninvestment from Israel and for various types of sanctions on Israel and protests against it, et cetera. And you see that all over Europe. the, the It's only the right radical intellectual uh, part of the well-actually graph that's upstream from you in the intellectual ferment with people like Robert Kennedy and the people who downstream from them, like Joe rog- Rogan, who have like... 100 times the media viewership of presidential candidates like Gavin Newsom and, yeah. So in the left, it's downstream from you. Things like Harvard are at this point just overtly anti-Semitic. They're not hiding it, they're not hedgehog. They're saying, oh, it's not the Jews. It's just Israel and finance and bankers and laws and medicine and all of the things that Jews have ever been associated with, which is what people in anti-Semitic movements have said throughout all of time. And like back when there were anti-Semitic parties in Austria, they would say things like that. You know, So Harvard is not downstream. It's just, to some degree, sets what's normal. And it's hard to see something as overt anti-Semitism when it's normalized on the left because they're the people who have the authority that tell people what to do when they're being a good boy.
1: And so you perceive that now this is a different time in culture where Israel is not getting the same type of support that they would have, say, 20 years ago?
0: It's not that they're they're getting more direct and more shameless uh, criticism and hostility, not just from, only from, The tiny left tier, is there any real hesitation in condemning those against them? The government is still basically on their side, but the ruling class of the left controlled institutions is, yeah, very overtly siding with the Hezbollah. In ways that would not have happened 20 years ago, certainly not in the face of an attack like this, bad, much worse than anything that's happened in the last 50 years, and much better recorded.
1: Well, so this puts the the this is a very interesting um, paradigm because I hear people being like, "Hey, slow down, Israel," as uh, an attempt to slow down the the beat of of war drums. Like you know, you know, representatives being like, "We shouldn't just." you know, you shouldn't just go fight them, you should end them, you should just, you know, put a total end to this. Meaning like, take the gloves off and fight unfettered, right? And that has all sorts of potential implications. Maybe I'm just viewing it from a propagandized idea. But it seems like this, this has the potential to kick off a world war. So people that are not giving 100% support for Israel, aren't necessarily anti-Semitic. They might just not want war.
0: So you might not support Ukraine in the sense of we should stop sending them fighter jets, while still supporting Ukraine in the sense saying that there is nothing remotely resembling moral parity between Ukraine and Russia. And in the mainstream left, people are claiming there is moral parity between Israel and Hezbollah, or claiming that there is not moral parity, but that morality obviously favors Hezbollah. That's like something that in the moderate conservative pragmatist older population, people might not be saying that much. But like journalists I know, et cetera, talk about it. People who are writers talk about it as like surprising them. So a Native American journalist who I speak to in Canada, in the Cowichan Nation, Coastal Salish, named Megan Champion, has talked about how she hasn't paid any attention to Israel, hadn't really thought about it as a Native American. But now she's like, wow, there's so much overt hatred from Jews by the mainstream journalist class and by the, you know, leftists that you interact with as someone like me. I guess I need to, like, think about how to protect them, defend them. And, you know, I am thinking about what to talk with about her on that topic, because that's just what you see as a journalist who is themselves not part of the swarm, unindividuated mentality, but is instead a representative of, of an underprivileged group in a country that's trying to somewhat asymmetrically
1: voice that. So I guess I'm trying to parse what you're saying so that I understand it accurately. As I hear you, you're saying, if you look at the the board that's going on right now, um, what you might not realize is that the there are people that are not voicing support for Israel that are telling are signaling to the wider world. Hey, culturally, we have like the the way to be on our good side is not to support Israel, and that some of this is actual anti-Semitism, and some of it is just people receiving anti-Semitic messages of, We shouldn't fight Israel because Palestine has a reason for being there. There were war crimes committed against them. And so...
0: I don't think think I see a difference between the thing you're calling an actual anti-Semitism and the other thing. Because when they're saying these things about Palestine, they're not, like, applying the sort of standard that they would apply to any other country in a situation like this, and they're not even pretending to. And they're also endorsing support of uh, things protesting for Hezbollah, protesting for Palestine. Like they're not evaluating the situation in the way they're evaluating, say, Ukraine, where there's a clear aggressor and condemning the clear aggressor is the absolute least you do. Instead, they're often cheering and promoting and endorsing the aggressor as justified, which is, you know, more like the behavior of some parts of the Hungarian media where they might justify... Putin's invasion of Ukraine. This isn't a ambiguous case the way I see it, but you can also point at the very sudden reductions in Jewish admissions at organizations like Harvard at the same time as their way of talking about Israel changes in this way and then reveals itself in this way.
1: I guess, um, I, and I mean like, I this may make me like an immoral person, right? Like, But I don't think so. I sense that, like, in both of those situations, Russia and Ukraine and Israel and Palestine, is that these are very complicated and I don't have to have an opinion about it.
0: So I would say you definitely have to, if you say that, not also say an opinion like there's a parity between them or supporting the wrong side. And second, obviously everyone can't have an opinion about everything, but, like, if people have opinions about a lot of things, Then they have some level of, I think, requirement to have at least weekly endorsed general perspectives on the things that most people who have opinions about a lot of things. So, for example, if
1: if we went back and we looked at what did Harvard say about uh, Russia invading the Ukraine, they came out with these very strong. I don't know if they did or not, but they came out with something very strong about that. Then they now have dipped their toe into the water and you've got to have an opinion on what's going on with Israel and Palestine?
0: No, Harvard made a statement on Israel. I doubt they came out on Ukraine, but nobody questions which, that there is not moral parity between the Ukraine and Russia. Nobody says there might be a moral parity between Ukraine and Russia who has any sort of voice. There are a lot of people who say that we shouldn't support Ukraine because it might create World War III, and that might be a reasonable thing to say in Israel, too, if you think that that might create World War Three, But not really anyone thinks that very much it might create World War Three. in the same way. It's not a nuclear power fighting America we're talking about here.
1: I mean, I will say the one thing I've seen more memes about than anything else is the path that this takes us to World War III about, about Israel. So, like, I mean, somebody's talking about it.
0: I mean, why would Russia and the U.S. side on different sides over this? That's interesting that you see that, because I'm not seeing that. But, yeah, I would not expect anyone to expect the U.S. and Russia to take opposed sides here. Russia supporting Hezbollah
1: just seems weird. But I... I think that it looks more like, how will Iran get involved? How will this, you know... So uh, you might have a local
0: nuclear exchange between Israel and Iran, which would be very bad for Israel and very bad for Iran, but especially very bad for Israel, probably. But, like... That's about as bad as you're getting. A very small nuclear war is not World War Three, you know. Um, but mostly I wasn't talking about that. I'm saying if someone wants to just say, we don't want to aid even our most necessary allies like Taiwan after, um, after 2028, the way Vivek Ramaswamy does, I really disapprove of him saying that. I think he is like very wrong that that's a good policy. But I think he's straightforwardly not saying we're against the Taiwanese. He's taking a consistent stance, as he sees it, of anti-interventionalism. If someone says that we shouldn't be fighting or helping Ukraine, that makes sense too, to some degree. And if that person also says we shouldn't be helping Israel the way Ramaswamy does, I'm definitely not going to read that as anti-Semitic. I'm going to read that as like, A much, much weaker evidence of anti-Semitism. I I would say he shows much weaker evidence of anti-Semitism than most mainstream politicians. But if they're saying that there is moral parity between Ukraine and Russia, or that Russians are the good guys, the way like some of the Hungarian news says that there is moral parity between Ukraine and Russia, or that the Russians are the good guys, that the Ukrainians are run by Nazis, that, that, that there's all this talk. In the normal thing for the intellectual community, the, the world community to do is stigmatize you heavily, and sort of deny that you hungry are what we're going to regard as a free society and cast massive slanderous asp- aspersions upon it. But like, we're casting those aspersions on them because they really are doing something pretty fucking outrageous. They are, like, very clearly siding with or endorsing a group, an invasion of another country in a way that practically everyone considers totally unadmissible. You know, Ukraine is not fair target for invasion, is, I think, basically universally acknowledged. Even if you also say that it was more America's fault than it was Putin's fault, in that from a geopolitical game, America was trying with Europe to provoke this conflict. You know, even if you say that America is even more blameworthy than Putin, nobody claims that Putin is equally blameworthy as Zelensky or that Russia is equally blameworthy as Ukraine without people considering them absolute bloody lunatics.
1: I think you and I are living in different worlds. I think that, uh, like, I, I couldn't point to specific people that say that, but I would say I could walk into many places throughout the United States and people would say, I don't know how Zelensky did it, but he's like bleeding our coffers dry. And, and That's
0: different. And, That's a statement about getting money. Nobody is saying, you're replacing my statement repeatedly here. You're equivocating between or equating repeatedly between, should we give these people money because they are so deserving and in need and such good allies? And there you can easily say, hell no, of course not with Ukraine. Or, and also, well, obviously Israel is... A close ally. But then there's still a question of whether they're deserving whatever the fuck that means and whether they're in the right.
1: I guess the end of my point on this would be, but they didn't have a story that was written about what was going on with Russia and Ukraine. And so when they write the story of what did they think happened, they see a guy that's draining their coffers and they think maybe he was bad before. I, I don't like like if you think, oh, all human beings operate from a principle of we start with chapter one and we read history through there. But the reality is you drop into whatever chapter you're starting to pay attention to. And then you imagine what chapter one was, right? Or chapter five or chapter 10, if you dropped in, you know, three quarters of the way through the book or or uh, actually you're always at the very last page and the new pages are being written. And I think that your sense that everyone thinks that Putin is the aggressor and that he was um, morally wrong and everyone believes that, I I. St- I sense that that is not the case, not because people are talking from complete information, but because they're not
0: talking. So it seems like you're equating talking from complete information from the thing that Heidegger would be calling thrownness or being in time or Dasein.
1: Okay, tell me more.
0: So, necessarily, our brain is smaller than the universe. No one has ever acted from complete information on anything. But if you are basically trying to have an individuated consciousness at all, and if you are basically trying to make moral judgments at all, then you are in fact engaged in a process of both trying to make sense of the past and the present and the present in terms of the past, and you very much do not make moral judgments or proclamations. And I still think you're not clear, clarifying whether these people are making moral proclamations or not. Ah, okay. It seems to me that you're suggesting that people who... that there's an attitude of being thrown into time that, of not, that involves not looking at all in the past while making insinuative or speculative moral assertions, not um, moral claims as if they were moral claims, to decide what side to take in a conflict. Say that again. The way you described the people you're talking about, as taking a... Well, maybe he's a bad guy, too. Maybe... Like, there's a filling in the past with incomplete information or lack of knowledge is one thing. Filling in it with maybes and insinuations that are not looked into in any detail, but used to allow one to assume that the moral... And hold
1: those beliefs without any sort of... Yeah, like, right. that's that, just that, what they think. That's so just I'm how. saying that's
0: a full opting out of morality. If you did that in your business, you would just be stealing from people. If you did that as an educator, you would just be swindling them, lying them, indoctrinating them into a cult. That's like, there isn't a way of being more not moral than doing that. Like, they might not be Choosing immorality in any other sense than that, that, but that there is a complete choice of
1: immorality. I think. I think that I'm describing how human beings. No, think. definitely I mean, I not. Think, when I you're doing
0: like, a legal case, you don't do that. When you are making a judgment of who wronged who, you absolutely don't do that at all. You, rather than making a judgment of who harmed you, You investigate and you have some idea of what normal principles of investigation are. If you are running a business, even the most corrupt business, the business necessarily has processes that force people's imitative behavior and ass covering to come together into a collective whole which implements some level of investigation and knowing the situation. The abandonment of situational awareness is simply an abandonment of participating in the game of ethics, ethos, the game of debt and credit, the game of shared record keeping and shared history that allows one to fill obligations. And what you're describing here is specifically people opting out of shared history. You're saying that they're replacing their shared history with maybes that give them uh, free reign to pick aside arbitrarily as political con- considerations dictate.
1: I guess I think that they don't perceive that that's what they're doing. It is that they have finite uh, attention, time, energy.
0: Everything is finite, but there's a choice to do none and substitute maybes and re- withhold judgment. And there's a choice to do something else. That And I'm saying that there's a sense in which they don't perceive that that's what they're doing. Because in a sense, they don't perceive anything at all. Like, they don't perceive anything at all in the sense of bringing in information and turning it into a map of the world and a record of accounts. But there is a sense in which they definitely perceive. They can drive, they can pick up the laundry, and they can imitate and fall into a ritual. You know, they're, I'm saying that, that from the perspective that normalizes that, the world is inexplicable. The perspective that normalizes that cannot account for the existence of anything does not account for the existence of anything. It is a commitment to not giving and receiving accounts, but merely imitating the giving and receiving of accounts, which is also called theft or fraud. I'm being exactly literal here. I'm not being abstract at all. I'm not being obscurantist at all. We can dive in at any depth here. This is like...
1: I'm saying that the human mind just
0: like... Right, and I'm saying that's... That all of the technologies we see around us testify that it does. All of the legal procedures we see, all of the rules we see testify that it does. Your claim is that the human mind does not adhere to
1: rules. No, I'm saying (coughs) that the human mind can't handle that much information. And when you bring up the concept of historical memory, right, like historical memory is... What do we all think happened? Because either we weren't there or enough time has elapsed that our memory of what's going on. I mean, like eyewitness accounts are famous for being incredibly fallible, right? Because people misremember things or the way that they, you know, they've gone through the story so many times that they've started changing details.
0: Or they are not interested in truth, not interested in giving accurate accounts, as you describe people as being not interested in truth, not interested in accurate accounts, but merely saying, well, maybe this, maybe that, in a unprincipled way, without trying to weigh them or whatever.
1: But I don't think that anybody else or me, I, I would even include myself in this. Right, But I,
0: I would not. I would say that your behaviors more or less continually refer back to chains of evidence, chains of investigation. And the thing that you're describing people as doing involves not referring back to chains of evidence, chains of investigation, like the... Like, it literally wouldn't be possible to run a business by behaving that way. You have to investigate things in order to figure out what's true and what's false for all sorts of things. Opting out of that while making moral pronouncements or while entering into conflicts is the intention to steal Not the intention to navigate life in a peaceful and cooperative way, but the intention to go join in the process of concealing other people's stealing while engaging in stealing yourself. Let me
1: see if I can restate for you what you are saying and see if I'm correct in what you're saying. You're saying, Vance, by taking the approach of saying people don't really know what's going on in Russia or in Israel— And the fact that they fill in stories about what could have happened, the explanations as far as they can conceive of or what they can imagine, inherently makes whatever decision they come to uh, morally corrupted. It's it's not...
0: I wouldn't say it's even corrupted. I would say it's not morality at all. They are simply claiming that making up stories and using them to justify taking sides, engaging in violence, taking people's money, etc., is right, is normal. It, it, it's, it's a. Uh, you could say it is morally corrupted. From an ethical perspective, it is an opting out of ethics entirely. You might say that one opts out of ethics entirely to enter into a morally corrupted state where your perceptions of the human condition are altered and you don't try to make
1: sense of the world anymore. I, I'm, I guess to finish out my restatement of what you think I'm saying. So if somebody comes to a a position by filling in maybes and, and imaginations, they are um they're they're very far away from being able to make a moral judgment and they're doing something else.
0: Yes, they're doing something else entirely. They're not making a flawed moral judgment. They are not fail, intending to and failing. They are intending to not. When you say maybes and imaginations, I mean there's a difference between uncertainty, which is always everywhere. And they drive to cover for these people by pretending that uncertainty is the same thing as imagination. With AIs, we talk about hallucinations. We talk about trying to get the AIs to stop hallucinating, trying to get the AIs to stop filling things in from their imagination and making things up. Because AIs don't have immorality. All
1: they have is what they see from us. Which shows (laughs) We might have a definitional difference then because what I'm saying is um, human beings, let's just say over the last four years, had a lot of collective illusions about the way things worked and what truth was and who they could believe shattered, right? So they, they were like, hey, you know, I was told masks work. The government's always told me things are generally correct. And now I'm putting one or two masks on. Now I find they don't. So maybe there is another way to explain this. Or I was told that vaccines would stop transmission. And so therefore, when somebody from a position of authority says something, then my safest assumption is not just to assume that they are um, you know, correct, but maybe that they are trying to mislead me. So they're taking in all of this information and, and about Russia, Ukraine, Israel, Gaza, whatever it is, and they're saying, I have found it valuable in the past to invert what I am told is the truth, and I will likely arrive at a better conclusion than what I did before. And if you look at what's gone on just in the last few, uh, you know, just just over Ukraine and Russia, the US shut down Russia's ability to talk to American citizens. You couldn't get the various news outlets. So people coming to those conclusions of filling in with maybes and I'm going to invert what I'm being told is the truth is a rational decision
0: rational is an interesting way to t- describe it I think I could hear that as it's a contrarian decision and I can also hear that psychologists or like Keegan who are trying to confuse the idea of rationality are using rational in a narrow technical sense that means I shouldn't like have that.
1: used the word rational you can understand why they would come to those conclusions and framing it from that point of view doesn't make them as immoral as stealing.
0: I think it does make them totally, fully, and completely as immoral as stealing, to frame it from that point of view. And I think that, in fact, if they're doing it at all honestly, it leads to them stealing. Like, if, at, at the limit of positive morality from that perspective, the global champion of it unambiguously was crowned last year, Sam bankman fried
1: Okay, say more. The,
0: the better you do, the, the more you do that, the more you, or the more honestly you do that, the more you will steal. Because if you're, the position you took was regarding yourself to be an enemy of the state, regarding the state to be a regime that is committed to your harm. And if you honestly regard the state to be a regime that is committed to your harm, you should, among other things, assume that the moral judgments it gives you are at a first approximation inversions of the truth, and therefore should, as best as possible, optimize against siding with the people it says to side with, making the moral judgments that it makes. It's like totally valid to say, as far as I can tell from all of the evidence available, Putin is a monster, but he's still almost certainly worse less bad than our monsters and he seems to be their primary enemy. So insofar as we can, we should side with them. That's like the correct decision for someone in the French resistance to make with respect to Stalin. And people in the French resistance make that decision with respect to Stalin. I certainly don't think Putin is as bad as Stalin. That would be insane.
1: But, but he you was could, our ally. You, like, I guess, and maybe this is the purpose of... of uh being able to, to talk about this in, in a back and forth um, disagreement, but someone could look at what Putin is doing and say, everything they're telling me about that he is evil, the things that I see him doing, dropping, you know, nuclear material on people and assassinating them, those don't look good. I think he is probably a bad guy. But is he a bad guy in the way that my government is describing him? I don't know. So I
0: would just agree with that. Putin is almost definitely not a bad guy in the way that our government is describing him. Almost for sure. He is still almost for sure a bad guy, situational on a lot of relatively concrete things. Right. And he is also almost for sure really, really close to certain did invade Ukraine. Ukraine didn't invade him. Nobody denies that, doubts that, objects to that claim.
1: He really
0: did certainly... He crossed a
1: border that (laughs) previously had said, that's yours, this is mine, and then he crossed over it. And started
0: killing people with tanks, and mm -hmm. that's, like, really extreme bad guy behavior. You might say that a lot of people who engage in that behavior might be more moral than the average person even much, much, much more moral than the average person. They just have a lot of responsibility, which forces them into extreme bad guy behavior. I'm like, it's easily plausible to me that like Napoleon is much, much, much more moral than the average person, while still being like engaged in a lot of bad guy behavior. I don't know whether Napoleon is engaging in more bad guy behavior or less than Putin's. I am pretty sure that, at least, relatively early in his career, he had relatively good reasons to do so, having to do with like at least some of it. So he was incredibly treacherous to his own troops. So is Putin. They're they're both like definitely sociopathic in ways that normal people are not, where they wouldn't be in those sorts of positions of power, but they are probably doing better jobs in those positions than actual normal people would do if you were to put actually normal people into those positions. But also, those positions really shouldn't be, and never are, except under the weirdest circumstances, filled by anything remotely resembling a normal
1: person. Maybe Jimmy Carter counts. You know? (laughs) And so the extrapolation is, so even if you can understand why he did it, and, uh, and you can come up with plausible reasons... It, it is who whatever pronouncement you're making about uh, Hamas attacking Israel, Putin attacking the Ukraine, there are places where individuals should stay that is wrong. I see what as far as I can see the the through the fog of war, mistakes are being made here. Bad people are doing bad things.
0: or good people by the standards of people in power. Which okay. may People be, are
1: doing bad things.
0: People are doing bad things and they are doing bad things asymmetrically. While the Ukrainians are surely, absolutely for sure, doing bad things, they're absolutely for sure not with as little motivation or provocation doing as bad things. They might sometimes be doing some worse things. Our authorities may be lying to us, probably are, about, for instance, who destroyed a dam. And you might call that terroristic but it's a war, for God's sakes, where you're being is invaded. It, the... the If you're going to... You could take the position, all, moral, all war is completely immoral, and... Or you could take the position... There is some variation in morality among war, but trying to differentiate is for losers. You should try to side with a stronger side. You should try to side with your better ally, etc. But, like you can't take this uh, you can't ever give yourself total free rein to make up details in your own head or share them or and stand by them or give them up quickly and make up new details to justify taking a side and claiming you're acting from morality without think, being actually without morality entirely
1: I think the difference in our position here is that as I was describing that, I was saying it not as they're sitting in there home in Nebraska saying, oh, maybe it's this. It's that they're they're doing their best to create scenarios in their mind where the thing that they're being told may not be true. So what is it that could be true? And I didn't mean it as they're sitting there being like, how could I change the facts so that that way I can still root for the team I want to root for, even though they're doing bad things. But I think that everyone on all sides has huge gaps in information and are just filling it in with what with what they can. So
0: absolutely for sure, but the fact that there that it could take this long to make that distinction while it seemed to me you were taking the opposite position. I think that you're intentionally equivocating in your own mind between those distinctions when you evaluate people morally in order to have a degree of freedom for how you're going to evaluate people's morality and feel good about the morality of people who you also relate to socially as totally amoral and needing to be told what to do.
1: I don't know that I agree with that. I think that for me, what I have found is the positions I took as a 20-year-old and a 30-year-old with absolute certainty turned out to be radically incorrect and that um, updating my, um, my way of interacting with the world and being far more comfortable saying, I don't know.
0: So I've always been comfortable saying, I don't know. And what you do when you're comfortable saying, I don't know, is try to make up probabilities out of your ass and improve them as best you can with the information you've got. And I believe you were doing that in your 20s and 30s. And I believe that you were probably totally wrong about some positions you didn't talk about at all that you just assumed, but I doubt very much that you were totally wrong in the sense that many people who are not trying to be right
1: are totally wrong. About things that you Somebody trying to make something up in order to fit a narrative, like that I I, I misstated that. Like that's not you took me as a literal thing and I took it as like how's their brain No, kind I of took working. you as
0: equivocating between two things, one of which people definitely do, and also large language models definitely do, and which is normalized to a greater or lesser extent by society by equivocating in that way and by equivocating about the degree to which it's immoral to do it. Like, there is a society engages in this behavior collectively. It does engage in this sort of make shit up behavior collectively. The authorities we observe in response to COVID engage in this sort of behavior collectively. And they do it with authoritarian pronouncements. They claim to know... uh, uh, There is an enormous ubiquity of this Mm -hmm. in society. And, And it is, because it is ubiquitous, mandatory on us society insists that we pretend to not know the difference between the two things that you were saying and that we equivocate both about the degree to which these are or are not inevitable and about the degree to which they are and are not ethically transgressive. What I'm saying is there is an, there is an individuated, ethically motivated way of orienting one's mind, which we talked about earlier today, and there is a different way of orienting one's mind that is transpersonal, intersubjective, not individuated. And there is a authoritarian power structure that works with non-individuated mind. And there is an intellectual power structure that works with individuated mind, engaged in hierarchy and some level of cheating and deception, but within an individuated frame. And, like, the... Intellectual structure tends to remain committed to denying that there exists a different power structure that is entirely non-intellectual.
1: Okay, let me Kathy Newman this and say, so you're saying that um, in places like the government or like potentially large corporations, the way that they allow people to come up through the administrative, the bureaucratic system is you sit there for 20 years, you do your job. And even though you see things that are going on that are not necessarily good, you make up stories in order to be able to justify them so that you can keep coming into the office every day. After 20 years, they say, welcome to the top of executive management. And you're going to get the, the, the great future, the retirement in the government or the, whatever that is. And that, um, the thing that, that individuated people do which these are people that are broken away from from like what society wants you to believe or what what society wants you to think
0: and also all children
1: and children
0: all of them you know everyone starts individuated society socializes people they secondarily socialize people. In various ways to and cause them to stop being individuated. And it doesn't work on everyone, but it can they can have more or less pressure on different groups. So that it works on practically everyone if they are from what we call privileged groups, because they try harder. The more privilege you have, the more the system tries to de-individuate you and bring you into its heart, which is to say, take away your heart,
1: take away your soul. And um, when, with regards to places like uh, Israel and, and Gaza and what happened with Hamas, this is, um, you are recognizing that there are two different sides, like we, we talk about liberal and conservative, that are using their, their voice from authority of like, you should come into our larger heart and, and uh, give up your own individual sense of what's going on here and believe what we believe. And what then? So the left is believing that um, uh, maybe the, the, that they should. The be... left is
0: saying side with Hezbollah, non-viol- nonviolently side with Hezbollah, or go as far in that direction as you can without being attacked by the administrative uh, system.
1: Okay, and what's the right saying?
0: The intellectual right says, hmm, I'm confused. The authorities have been lying to us about everything. Maybe they were lying about Nazism being good and we should be Nazis. But hey, I'm a Jew and my friends are are all Jews. Maybe the Nazis uh, were just like the Jews or they were borrowing things from Judaism in order to figure out how to be better Germans or something. The normal person on the right is still in favor of taking authority taking orders, the the de-individuated people on the right are into taking orders from people who are in favor of administrative machinery, in favor of compliance and following rules. And they assume that Obviously, the Israelis are in favor of administrative machinery, compliance and rules. We need to make deals with them. We need to do business with them. We couldn't possibly do business with Hezbollah. What would it even mean for us to be doing business with Hezbollah? And siding with people is pretty much the same thing as doing business with people. How is this even a question?
1: I guess we could maybe join the boycotts on the left and stop doing business with them. So the left and this is the battle of Hezbollah, at least in the American psyche, is a battle of left and right between be on team Israel, beyond on team Hezbollah, be on team not Israel.
0: Be on team against Israel, be on team Israel, be on team against Israel, which justifies being against Israel because of the Palestinians, but also has always justified being against Israel for, you know, in every generation they gather to destroy us. And so
1: where does this go? What happens next? Well, I feel like
0: probably it doesn't amount to very much for real as a practical global issue. The Israeli conflict is big for Israel, 10-9-11s, really small compared to the Ukraine conflict. Much smaller countries that are much less affected. You know, so it sucks for a lot of people in Palestine, their standard of living probably falls from approximately the same as judged by uh, life expectancy and a bit better in terms of income and wealth than their neighbors in Jordan, who they might conceivably be the upper bound for what they could hope for without Israeli occupation, to something significantly worse than that probably not lower than Syria's life expectancy, which is still much, much higher than African life expectancies. But their path of possible futures probably get a lot worse than, say, Lebanon's, where life expectancies are lo- longer than the U.S. despite poverty, and It would be nice if someone maybe from Lebanon or from the Kurdish resistance or some other group that has experience with non-traditional organizational structures could be helping consult with Israel and them to try to figure out what sorts of makeshift governance they can do to keep their life expectancies as close to Jordan and as far from Syria as possible. their incomes, their economic situation won't fall to anywhere remotely close to Syria. and might still not fall below Jordan. Um, but it sucks for them. It It's um, really a shame, and I don't have any... real sense that there's much that anyone in the world could do to make things not go in that pretty sucky direction. Except I guess I could imagine... I could imagine if you could have like a philanthropic visionary in a lot of power military contractor or you know, technologist, someone could like create the type of electronic mechanized authoritarianism that would still be authoritarian and awful in some ways for them, but which might objectively work out better than what's likely to actually happen. You know, you could have less violent methods of handling a shitty situation if you had better tools for maintaining safety while projecting
1: authority. So um, when Russia invaded Ukraine, um, it it was like obvious to everyone that, not to everyone, I'm, I'm being facetious, I'm not being literal. Obvious
0: to everyone who... No,
1: that that Russia was going to uh, get their ass handed to them and be sent packing, right? People thought like, oh, this is you know, this is only going to be a few. Even weeks that Ukraine or was going to
0: get their ass handed. To well,
1: them. I don't know. Like I'm, I'm, I think there were people that thought that that was going to be like two to three weeks, right? There but were they that they thought,
0: thought that, that Russia would win in two to three weeks. Nobody thought Ukraine would win in two to three weeks. That,
1: fair enough. Yeah, that's fair enough. But they thought it, that that it would be over in two to three weeks. And yet, billions and billions, maybe even trillions at this point of dollars have gone there, all sorts of munitions. Do you sense that this Israel-Palestine thing has the, like, ah, they'll be able to go in there and clean up Hezbollah? Jesus
0: Christ, no. That would be an insane thing to expect. Obviously, it will be worse than the situation in Afghanistan, where the U.S. withdrew after 20 years with 3,000 casualties. Um, But... The thing in Afghanistan still made life better for the people in Afghanistan. It was just a drain on the US. Like, it was much, much better being ruled by the US than by being ruled by the Taliban you know, almost every index of, of prosperity went better. But that was it's nicer to be ruled by people who have an overwhelming numerical and force advantage than to be ruled by people who have less of an overwhelming numerical and force advantage because then you'll resist more. So I feel like the Gaza thing might kill more Israelis and get more P- Gazans killed and be shittier in some ways. Like, the Gaza, people in Gaza's lives will get worse when they get invaded. While people in Afghanistan's lives got better almost immediately when they got made, invaded because they were under a regime so that, like, who the fuck cares? Yeah, being invaded is great. But um, otherwise, I think the situation's analogous to Gaza, uh, to the Afghanistan thing. It, it's shitty. Um, I think that we know about the amount of money that's gone to Ukraine. It's not easy to give away trillions of dollars. We had saw how slowly money was given to them during the initial part of the war. It was only about forty million billion over like a couple of years, over like a year and a half or a year. So it's probably like pushing a hundred billion now. See, but these that's are like the things drop like, in the I budget. have no
1: concept of the money at all. I just I just know like, hey, we had to an Inflation Reduction Act, and somehow money got allocated to the Ukraine. Like, there, I, I'm I'm being... I I follow international news almost none. Like, I, I am... I
0: don't follow any news, but I've still seen the 100 million, billion number a bunch of times, and I saw $40 billion earlier. And I also see right-wing memeing, which is not the discourse thing, but the authority thing at right. the lowest level of the authority thing. I see right-wing memeing about... Infinite budgets that are, I would regard it as facetious or a joke, or like a joke to the degree that the 2012 end of the world was a joke. Not something that any, that is intended to deceive someone who is trying to figure out what's true, but only intended to provide deniable, ambiguous talking points to someone who is go, trying to take sides.
1: And I would be the I mean, I did a podcast two weeks ago about uh, how little you can really know about what's going on in the world. Right, but
0: you can't know things, but you can say there's convergent sources that say that about 40 billion up to a certain point and convergent sources that say 100 billion in other points. Oh, okay. One thing that you can know is whether people are sending clear tells that they are joking or edge loading or messing around or not serious. Like Richard Hanania has said a number of things about the ukraine spending uh, do you, are you familiar with him no he's an interesting case i'm sure he's going to be on the israeli side more or less despite being a palestinian he's a famous right-wing blogger a uh, tweeter and you know minor intellectual up the graph person and um he's like with respect to the russian ukraine He basically had the weirdest, most interesting growth and learning take ever, where he's like, okay, I expected Russia to just trounce Ukraine quickly. The Ukraine's held up fairly well. Turns out that, like, manliness and violence and aggression aren't as close to being the same thing as strength and virtue as I thought, and I'm no longer identifying as a conservative, although he continues to have a conservative fan base and edgelord and troll and try to exploit them and build on them. And... You know, I'm like less pro-manliness and victory and strength as a cause and not as motivated to take these sort of conservative causes after seeing Russia get defeated to the degree that it has relative to expectations. So that was a very cool take on Ukraine. He has a wonderful essay called Why I Hate Gender Pronouns More Than Genocides. But he has also said on Twitter that he... He wants to charge people for the tweets that don't gain him meme-bait meme, meme bait followers because his business is getting meme-bait followers. And the people who read the good t- tweets um, are, you know, taking up attention that he should be doing basically making bad tweets. And he makes unambiguously bad nonsense tweets about... Like, for the money that we've spent on Ukraine, we could put every homeless person in a two-story mansion. We could, uh, you know, pay off the national debt for 100 100 years. I don't remember the exact list, but it was totally absurd claims that are very unambiguously showing that you are trying to make sure that anyone who is trying to get the right answer... No, anyone who is trying to get the wrong answer knows that you're trying to get the wrong answer, too, because you're not a midwit. You know about midwits? I've talked to you about this before.
1: You can do it again.
0: So there's this meme around bell curves.
1: Yes, yes. Yes.
0: And there, there's the very brain damaged person, the dimwit, the midwit, and the wit on the sides of the belt. Yeah, the guy with the hood. Right. The
1: guy that's, like, yelling. And, and the guy the-
0: with the hood says the same things or slight variations of the things that the dimwit says. Right. While the midwit says something that basically is what the mainstream media would say. That's right. The, the, you could say the, guy, the dimwit acts like a populist. The midwit acts like what the mainstream media tells you to be, and the guy with the hood acts like a populist and says slightly different things. But the point is that the the populists are taking the position that the government is against them. They're taking the position that you should, in general, be deciding against the truth that the government is handing with you and not trying to make your own judgments about that. And that's a conceivably sensible, individually rational decision to make if you think you're basically being invaded. Um the wit is like organizing around ruling over, controlling the populists. So they're organized around saying the things that will mobilize the populists. They're being sarcastic. They're being ironic. They're edge-loading. They're making drastically false obvious claims and then saying, ha-ha, I was joking. And they are joking. But the, the, ah, the, the communication channel for meme-style jokes or edgy jokes is the communication channel for populist transmission of orders.
1: Okay, interesting. I could buy into this. Keep going.
0: So, there's a... Jeffrey Miller, the thing he is most right about, probably the only thing that's unique to him and public and that he's right about and important as an evolutionary psychologist, is I think there are basically two mating strategies which kind of match the Seinfeld episode about the comedian and the... uh, gymnast. So there's basically a mating strategy associated with de-individuated consciousness which centers on gender performativity and dominance and one orienting and like physicality and one around individuated consciousness that centers around like noticing the things that don't fit in, stick out, don't come together and making sense and drawing attention to them which is sort of centered around comedians. Uh, as an archetype, but which basically involves investigation and trying to accumulate <laughs> a choir. So I think that we're trying to that's one type of humor. It's a, I, okay, what I'm saying is that the thing that is meant by humor or jokes or co- comedy, differs between whether you are using your comedy as a way to point out falsehoods or whether you are using your comedy as a way to get away with falsehoods. Okay. So the type of comedian that, like, Dave Chappelle or, like, classic comedians who do stand-up are is creating tension in people that's released in humor by pointing attention at falsehoods that they find it convenient to pretend to themselves are true, and finding a way to Release that without lording over them, without making an ego claim against them, without making a command, without making them feel that they're worse people for having discovered it before. Like
1: Dave Chappelle going, like making the jokes about the L's, the B's, the G's, and the T's all in the car. And he's able to point this out in a way that if you talked about that community negatively without using humor, you'd be blasted. But because he's able to make a joke out of it, he's able to point out the thing that is not fitting in and the laughter signals people have agreement with
0: People agree with you but don't want to admit it. And there's the type of humor that's invoking people to agree with you and not want to admit it. And there's the type of humor that is invoking you can get away with pretending to believe this while knowing that it's obviously absurd and nobody... You don't need to worry that the other people who you're siding with believe it in good faith and are going to pull the pizza gate.
1: i mean i'm i'm because I, the, as you're saying this i can think of whether text strings with uh friends that that like where they put something out that's so preposterous but like everybody knows that it's not true but then it's like something that i i was i was thinking one that's very uncouth but people have made the joke that michelle obama is a man and so this is all over. You, you can get lots and lots of memes about this. Everybody knows that's not true. But then they're all kind of like elbowing each other like, well, maybe it's true. Is that yeah, what Yeah, that is.
0: But it's a bad example because okay. it's not – that's just being mean or aggressive or trying to insult someone. That's being bad at, at schoolboy humor. That's being bad at making fun of someone because you're unable to find the very right-on point of – you're not able to target well. Okay. Um, I'm more talking about Pizzagate and astrology. Astrology is a funny thing that you can pretend to believe while being confident that no one is ever going to do an astrological cleansing the way they might do an ethnic cleansing. Even if the horoscope says...
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's pretty funny. Because I have a running gag where I'm like full on 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 astrology and people can't quite discern whether or not... Is Vance really into this or not? But you're right. Nobody would expect that I would like be like, ah, those Capricorns, they have got to go. We've got to get rid of all of them. Yeah,
0: <laughs> right. So astrology is a funny thing that is not serious and labels the situation as not serious. And by playing around with not serious things, we can both... Establish that we're not being serious and establish that we will cover for each other and give each other cover as not serious when we say other things in this vibe that are maybe more like instructions and more like... Organize, planning out and organizing through yes and and play ways of defrauding people, ways of getting away with things, ways of giving people advice that you think you might get blamed for giving them, ways of having sex with people without feeling guilty because it was your destiny, and maybe even ways of very slowly, implicitly building communities to backstab people in business deals when Mercury is in retrograde, for instance.
1: Yeah. This is hilarious because on my podcast, I've probably no less than 10 times talked about how for a while there, when we were interviewing babysitters, they all believed in astrology. Like you, you like I, my wife at first didn't believe me. And I was like, no, no, watch. Anytime we interview one, I would casually bring it up and they would light up and they would want to talk about it. And they would be like really super into it.
0: Right. So by talking about astrology, you are showing that you're smart, fast, clever, and able to be playful and try to help someone get away with things. And that can come in handy. That makes you a more valuable ally. And if you're like me and you want to geek out about astrology and like do statistical analyses of personality in association with different signs and falsify the mainstream horoscopes and standard stereotypes by doing so, but also speculate on interactions you have with an astrologer where. They make a large investment decision based on astrological information or they recommend it, give a good investment recommendation based on the astrological decision. Uh, Like, given that's only happened twice to me and the effect sizes were freaking huge. Someone made a $50,000 investment based just on astrological information, in one case with someone they'd never met and didn't know anything about their business proposal. And someone else um, predicted that my... Purchase my deal to rent their apartment would be needed because the people who had offered, shown me a better apartment and offered earlier that day to let me use it would uh, back out of the deal because Mercury was in retrograde. So those are large enough effect sizes that it would be stupid of me, obtuse, to not think that people are interfacing, transmitting some real information that is relevant to making business decisions. And I can speculate on what types of information could be used. And I can see how like, a bunch of people who know, hey, if you fuck people over in business deals when Mercury's in retrograde, um, you can also like make business bets on the assumption that other people will do the same thing. And you can back each other up and cover for each other when that happens. And on average, you can make money by collaborating in each other's betrayals without needing to understand or having any strategic uh, shared background. So your coordination can't be detected.
1: And so Pizzagate uh, would be one. would, Would flat earthing be another?
0: No, Pizzagate is the failure. That's what happens when you don't do astrology hard enough. I'm saying that with Pizzagate, people on QAnon are saying something obviously stupid, crazy, haha, ha, everyone knows this is obviously a joke if you're not extremely bad at understanding people and making sense of the world. But it wasn't clear enough, so someone attacked that pizza parlor. So that's like why you would want astrology if you're planning vague, nefarious, uh, Undetectable coordination—the way QAnon is planning vague, nefarious, undetectable coordination—and
1: but what about the flat earther? Is that is that kind so of so? I same feel thing? like
0: the flat earther thing I expect is kind of the same thing, but it it displays a much. It's a weird vibe. it, 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 it it's a really weak meme it's a very ineffective meme compared to astrology which has managed to perpetuate itself for ten
1: thousand years or whatever who this knows This flat earth thing's gone on for at least a little while like it's it's pretty popular
0: it, do you find that is rapidly growing in popularity
1: i don't know about growing i mean nobody comes to me and says vance i don't i think the earth is flat this wouldn't be the type of person i'd run i bet your babysitters
0: often. aren't flat earthers no I, they're not but that's more of a guy thing it's such a rare guy thing, though. I feel like with astrology, it's like most girls of the right age range. That's or right. Or the right several age ranges. That's right. And for flat earthers, it's like more like Lizard Man's constant of 5% of people will endorse any preposterous claim, uh, but I don't think it's even as good as Lizard Man's constant. I bet there are more people who claim that the British royal family and a lot of Jews, but not just Jews, are actually uh, five-dimensional, reptorial aliens. Maybe they won't have all of the details and won't know about the 3D, 5D, 4D, 5D thing and how it relates to the Lizardman thing. Maybe they haven't thought it through very much, but you're familiar with the David Icke Lizardman thing. Yes. I think that's probably more popular than astrology by like i mean it's then flat earth by quite a bit you know so
1: when you say that people are using this as a as a form of coordination is this an emergent phenomena meaning like humans just kind of do this and they figure out these ways of communicating or is there a small group of people that's sitting around being like ah we can or is it a meme that that i would say it is
0: i I would say it is evolved for humans to When they get tricked, start looking to meme. It's evolved for people to take ideas less seriously, be less motivated by morality, less hardworking, less motivated to try to make things make sense, and more motivated to see what other people seem to be getting away with, including the people who you at first felt bad about being fucked over by, and look to sort of kiss their asses and get into the game by learning from them. The way, for instance, in Mozart's Don Quixote, the other guy who's going along with Don Quixote not Don Quixote, sorry, uh what's it called? Casanova. No, Don Giovanni. In Mozart's Don Giovanni, he has this assistant who's like kind of trying to learn the game of being a predatory rapist from this high status predatory rapist aristocrat and like help kind of kissing his ass, although he sort of is mistreated by him. I think that people, when they perceive injustice, try to look for... When they perceive injustice that they have no power to seek recompensation from, that they have no uh, recourse against, they are evolved to try to figure out what sorts of behaviors they can imitate without without understanding them that are associated with injustice so that they can back it up and help it out without being implicated in it, join in. They they perceive that injustice is powerful and does favors to those who imitate without understanding. It's surface phenomena, and when people join the herd mentality, they are very motivated to help out people who they see imitating without understanding unjust behaviors.
1: Well, this is getting into a deeper level of, of uh, my greatest fear, which is, you know, the fear of the mob, right? That's always my, my greatest fear. Mine
0: too. That's what anti-Semitism is. The anti-Semitism is the slowest mob. There are always mobs at different speeds across different parts of any sort of high population density, complicated society that we know about, you know, but they exist in different social circles at different speeds in different ways. And when they exist in intellectual circles, they create false narratives that claim that normal human behavior is mob behavior and thereby justify it and cover a lot of it. And so we see this happening in like, France with like, Lacan and with postmodernists. We see it happening in America later with a lot of pop neuroscientists and science and pop spirituality.
1: Does this explain uh, DEI, people People being very worried about being canceled um, and then deciding like, oh, well, then I'm going to be the first one to, to sign the oath and uh, get my company to do it and to really fan the flames on this?
0: I absolutely think so. I think that the diversity, equity, inclusion is understood as bad behavior, in bad faith, necessarily to be done in bad faith. So if we're doing it in bad, if we know someone is acting in bad faith, they're a good ally because they can ally with you based on purely cl- political considerations rather than a mix of individualist, uh, selfish, and moral and political considerations, the way someone acting in good faith might.
1: Is that what like uh, pronouns in the bio are? Or people participating in Oh, absolutely, in the... yeah. I never thought about it like that. How... Describe that to me in another way.
0: So from my perspective, I am probably the person under approximately the most social encouragement to gender transition that's like ambiently emergent from the way in which I interact with people. In the transactivism world, they call people like me seeds. They are presenting the sorts of indicators that motivate trans people to become obsessed with you, follow you around, try to recruit you uh, very very slowly. I'm probably about the cis straight guy with the most uh, communication with and information about sort of the multiple outer circle and inner circles of trans ideological doctrine. Okay. So the... This part, though, is not coming from explicit trans-ideological doctrine unless you're going to treat things as explicit through, like, long paper trails of academic citations. And, like, this is, maxim- it, this is the sort of thing that is only explicit insofar as it is max- passing through the maximal upstream of the intellectual stew as opposed to the maximal upstream of the authoritarian stew. Okay. So we were talking about thrownness and opting out of morality, etc. okay, earlier. And I was talking about Heideggerianism and the motivation to equivocate between different things. So, like, from my perspective, I experience living in a society which has discarded all but the thinnest facade of procedural law and which is also scrutinizing people's consciousness with undifferentiated consciousness, in, uh, unindividuated consciousness, in order to detect individuated consciousness and bring it into differentiated consciousness. From my perspective, insofar as I experience, and my close friends who I talked with about this experience, social pressure and encouragement to become trans, insofar as we encounter and experience an offer of a cost-benefit calculation that suggests that it would be a good idea for us to become trans, and um, tries to argue for it, really central to the offering is a type of collectivist identity or group identity or costly signifier of opting out from competition within individuated consciousness um, that does not require that one abandon reason. It, it's, an, it's the off- offer of a recognized point isolate of commitment to maintaining and standing by and stonewalling around, a false claim that qualifies one as a protected group, e.g. a group of people who are participating in a shame culture and therefore are de-individuated diff- and are a group and will be reliably able to, within s- sigma- signifiers that shame culture will recognize, be justified in defending one another and defending themselves. If you're not Trans, as someone like me, you're a schizophrenic. You're part of a unprotected, differentiated, de group. I'm not saying I've been diagnosed as schizophrenic. I'm saying if you are reasonably good at understanding psychology from like a Lacanian school or whatever, I'm like very clearly the sort of ideal form of the thing that yeah, our society is trying to label as schizophrenic and to claim the reasoning of which does not work in order to silence our claims and prevent us from disclaiming the arguments for identity between authority and intellectual authority or authority and tradition.
1: Okay, let me see if I can restate this. So you're saying you are one of the people that is on the edge of normal society, and, um, and there is a group of people that, that in the trans community that would look at you and say, hey, you may want to join our system. Because by joining our system and declaring that you are not a a male that's attracted to females, but you are something else, then you get to join in on our community and we will protect you from people that would say bad things about you. You also become a protected class. So you get certain um, benefits in our culture. You get certain advantages. And the price of doing this is you are now... De-individuated, meaning like you really have to represent what the whole group is representing, what we think about things.
0: But only within a contained bubble. The thing that makes their offer better than a religious offer is that they're offering a more clear containment bubble for what sorts of claims you have to make. You don't need to scramble your entire worldview and epistemology. You only need to distort some of your perceptions about who knows who can be probabilistically with what level of certainty expected to know what. You're, you're only distorting some probabilistic, vague, not rigidly coupled things, intuitions about what other people should be assumed to know, plus... About you. About the world and how it works.
1: This is a is, is 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 an application of of uh, clarity or reason. I'm I'm uh, like that I've never heard about this particular subject. So you're describing that one of the reasons that people would be attracted to this is not only do you get to be a part of a community, but the cost of being a part of this community is not as high as say joining a Catholic community or joining a. Orthodox Jewish right. community. Right. The spiritual
0: cost of joining a Catholic community is enormously larger than the spiritual cost of giving up one's genitals and taking hormones for the rest of your life and having some fairly severe health costs, et cetera, and huge economic costs and like uncertainty about long-term side effects. The spiritual cost of joining Catholicism is you know, is giving up your soul, and Catholicism knows that if you're doing it in an authentic way. While the spiritual costs of transgenderism are bounded by the sublime abstraction of the concept of gender and how it connects to things so that it only distorts your metaphysics, it doesn't sever your metaphysics from reality completely, which is part of why Absolutely elite science and math are so spectacularly dominated by transgender people at this day. It's just kind of ridiculous to consider an organization not obviously displaying real, like, trans exclusion if its scientific elite isn't at least, like, a quarter or a fifth trans in today's America.
1: Where where does this commitment, uh, like, go? I mean, like, it sounds, to me, when I think of, like... The Catholic church that I grew up in, the price is not really that high. It's Sunday for an hour plus like.
0: No, if you lived in a liberal society that could protect you from lawless violence against which you have no recourse without needing to give up individuated consciousness, then that's the case. But we're living in an illiberal society that requires that we at least partially surrender individuated consciousness. And surrendering individuated consciousness to in some ways be part of the body of Christ, the collective intelligence that is the Catholic Church, means a total opting out of morality with respect to an important part of your life and replacing it with this you know, malevolent or symbiotic
1: uh, collective intelligence. So to my audience, which I would say is largely religious, the them hearing you describe the trade-off between um, trans giving up your genitals, taking chemistry, you know, the, like... Untested, yeah, long-term health consequences. Yeah, all the health long-term consequences. health consequences, like, the, the trade is like... Huge amounts of money, surgical risk. I've known trans
0: people who've died in surgery, you know. So th-
1: <laughs> I think that most of the people that are religious are saying... That's a totalitarian belief system relative to I go to church on Sunday, we have family dinner, you know, I have to go to Sunday school. That's because
0: they're just normalizing totalitarianism. You might say that fascism is secularized Catholicism and is where totalitarianism comes from. Any group of people who are telling you that you have to believe something... And that you have to accept their moral judgments and be ruled by shame that they can impose on you. Like, these are people who are working with the soul. To work with the soul, I mean, to claim to control the soul, uh, you know, to believe it for real is totally totalitarian. And our society is like really, really good. I mean, that's the final totalitarianism in 1984 is believing that two plus two equals five. Our society is really... Good. So Trends is the strongest guarantee you can have of being protected by the most extreme Orwellian form of totalitarianism by accepting the minimal form of totalitarianism that is acceptable by our pluralistically totalitarian society.
1: And is this a, a belief system that you believe will stand the test of time? I mean, Catholicism has gone for hundreds, thousands of years...
0: No, I expect that this is a belief system that in the central timeline becomes irrelevant and vaguely fades into a gradual, slow renewal of the use of eunuchs in the People's Republic of China's extended empire.
1: That's a powerful statement.
0: Like... China's used Unix a lot over the time, over history. In America, we have trans people dominating the heights of the capacities that one is looking for in a eunuch. And in, in Ch- Taiwan, we have large gains to state capacity from the trans person, Audrey Tang, uh, helping them to manage COVID and helping them to manage their political system and their marketing and PR systems. Uh, you have... Um, America is deep in decline. China is definitely still rising. The American fantasy that China's on the collapse any day now has been buzzing since I was a little kid. That's, like, definitely not true. And, like, that doesn't mean America will be, like, literally colonized. That's silly. China didn't colonize people when it was overwhelmingly world-dominant in the 1400s either. It did its own weird ritualistic trade and acceptance of subordination thing. Um, But I expect that eventually America will be culturally colonized enough by China that I will not feel like I am living within a horrific totalitarian system as someone who is obligated to pick a form of totalitarianism in order to participate in totalitarian pluralism, but instead will feel like I am under a technocratic, basically, mostly, benevolent-ish, but not respecting freedom or intellectual integrity very much, authoritarian system that's like not very good at computer science and might eventually blow up the world with AI because it's not very good at computer science, but is pretty good at suppressing things, so might be able to suppress computer science well enough to not blow up the world with AI instead and eventually breed itself into some sort of superhumans using genetic
1: engineering. We'll get to the AI thing in just a second. But... There are a lot of people listening to this show right now that are very strong um advocates over the long term of America and to hear them to for many of them to hear you describing this country as a totalitarian pluralist state that requires you to choose a totalitarian regime to join that wouldn't even compute they wouldn't wouldn't have any wouldn't have any so I feel like if that was. Ten years ago, that would be me.
0: It wouldn't compute. I would see the long-term decline of various types, but I would see other types of rapid improvement that had been going on until fairly recently, and some things that were still improving, like Facebook. I would, um, 10 years ago, basically be worried about the rise of world culture. I'd be worried about long-term debt. I'd be worried about Not enough worried about the 2008 financial crisis, not nearly. Um, But I would basically think that the biggest bad signs of my youth had been averted, like the possibility of saber-rattling against China that could have gotten us into a nuclear war, and the Bush failing to establish anything like a dynasty seems like a good thing. It's really sketchy and scary for a stolen election to make the son of president, president. And like... While corruption in Silicon Valley seemed to be rapidly increasing and anti-tech oppression in Silicon Valley seemed to be for not being corrupt enough, not for being too corrupt, Um, and while the intellectual cultures that had not been at least somewhat political, such as the skeptics and science fiction community, had been destroyed and the internet was no longer quite as intellectually fresh and generative as it had been, still Tesla seemed to be Pretty amazing and rapidly improving. And like enough things seemed likely enough to get better in the reasonably near future. And I had only been acquainted for maybe four or five years with how people do power, like six years total maybe, with how people in power work, and had only been maybe three years acquainted with the degree to which the scientific establishment was intentionally suppressing basically all scientific and technological progress, and hadn't yet become acquainted with the level of coordination within the media to do the same thing. Um, I basically thought we were in an imperfect but generally okay-ish maybe path, where we basically had individual freedoms. And if you couldn't figure out how to make it in America, at least in an immigrant way, then you were basically the fault was on you, not on them. And I mean, that seems to be the attitude that Ramaswamy has now. It's a very intelligible attitude to me. Um, criticized by creating, you know, mild, you know, libertarian on the margin. But don't forget how far away we are from that as an ideal. And so therefore, don't crush people who by, by invoking the ideal as if it was being invoked in a just or systematic way. Um, then I experienced the social pressures that we've all experienced over the last 10 years. I saw the whole COVID drama play out. I don't know how I could possibly think that anymore. <laughs>
1: And so you now, but that still doesn't get you to totalitarian... No, the
0: specific concrete details of the conversations that I have with people across the political spectrum in an extremely not, like, basically near the peak of all of the different parts of the intellectuals too, as opposed to the authoritarian structure. Um, Yeah, nobody disagrees implicitly with these claims. They're like ground, ground claims without which it's not possible to make sense of any of the of our lived experience with getting into rooms, having conversations with people, getting paid, uh, predicting what investments will do about how well, et cetera. Like, we, you see too many of people effectively pressured into drugs, effectively pressured into very non-consensual, very coercive sexual scenes as part of participating in any situation. You interact with Jeffrey Epstein, you see him arrested, you see all of these elites who interact with him and feel it's necessary to cover it up, pretend they didn't, and, and no, not, who are not in a position from Bill Gates' level of power to say anything about what's going on there. You uh, then see this person who's untouchable be suddenly outed by the New York Post and the, and arrested and murdered, and, and he, all of the smart people who say never believe in conspiracy theories say, well, that's not a conspiracy theory, of course. Um, and people predict it before it happens, many times. And then you see John McAfee tattoo on his arm that he's not going to hang himself in prison and still hangs himself in prison. So, like, at this point, it's really clear that if the things that happened under our system had happened under Henry VIII, he would have been overthrown in a heartbeat, were, like, so much beyond the level of authoritarianism, of pre-parliamentary supremacy, you know, evil polygamist monarch Henry VIII, who still had to have the, his wives in sequence and still had to come up with excuses for them and still had to have actual trials with his enemy, the uh, Sir Thomas Mill. Uh, and, you know, there was still credible uncertainty about what way those trials would go. Like, there's no comparison between the level of rule of law, experienced justice, authoritarianism, ability to navigate life on idealistic, individualistic, legalistic, rather than cynical, collectivistic, uh, herd approach. Um, We're not India. Like, it's possible to be far more totalitarian with thousands of years of practice in the use of the caste system than either the Soviet Union or the Nazis could ever attain, and to hone that against itself and have left over the sort of harmonious, inegalitarian intermixture of a heterogeneous state of collective consciousnesses. You know, I, um, you know, would rather be anything than that but, you know, people who are dis- have a discerning sense for authoritarianism, like Nietzsche or Ayn Rand, and are just fully anti-authoritarian, are like so much more pro... Ayn Rand, so much more pro-communist than she is pro-Hindu.
1: Oh, that's interesting. You don't hear that said.
0: Yeah, but like, that's the thing that actually caused John Galt to go crazy, and try to bring down America in Atlas Shrugged. You've read it, right? Yeah, of course. Yeah, you remember that, right? The factory got taken over by a Hindu, and they started having meditation classes. It never
1: dawned on me that that was the criticism. I I just jumped over it. I thought it was like non-productive people, non-productive things.
0: Yeah, the 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 global limit of where the in the authoritarian or the the. Benevolent totalitarian impulse, insofar as it evolves from purely parasitic to symbiotic and normalizes the existence of heterogeneous crowd consciousnesses as a replacement for individuated consciousness. That went farther in India earlier. They developed more advanced spirituality than everyone else. They have a better sense of musical complexity and subtlety than everyone, with the possible exception of Germany. Their whole culture is built not around material technology, but around the psychotechnologies of harmoniously interacting within situation within a dynamic of total domination by the crowd and within a hierarchical, heterogeneous crowd. Is this why they were able to have so many more people? Because they didn't That's probably relevant, but more I think that's probably more cause than effect. My guess is that if you guess in the long run, in the long run, Nepal with the unfertile climate has a lot of people. And Tibet with a unfertile climate beyond all reason has like relatively more people there than it would in like Alaska or Finland. But <clears throat> But probably I expect the fertility comes first. The extremely abundant natural environment creates the possibility of people living while not having very individuated consci- you, you The more abundant your environment, the less individuated your consciousness needs to be in order to orient enough around the world around you to gather food, protect yourself from the cold, and reproduce. You can work harder under individualist assumptions organize more production sustainably under individualist assumptions, figure out more solutions to problems relative to a given level of intelligence and a population density
1: under individualist assumptions. So is this why, like we were talking before about the the trans or then joining a religious movement, um, do you have to have times of abundance in order to have those things grow or at least new ones grow?
0: You... To have this sort of thing, we're saying you have to have the natural slash technological capitalistic radical abundance that creates a huge degree of freedom in people, whereby people can explore nonsense and dive farther into it and disconnect themselves more from their senses, their understanding of reality, their understanding of their own nature, their understanding of what it is to be human and how anything works in order to become part of something that is not human, but a mob and surrender understanding how things work instead of understanding how to get by, how to get ahead, how to be accepted
1: and rise up. So if you are concerned as I am about mobs, Um, You've mentioned the the anti-Semitic mob. Um, There's
0: only one mob, or rather there is one Indo-European mob. There's presumably a Finno-Ugric mob. There's presumably lots of African mobs. There's presumably two Chinese mobs because they're probably You think it all comes
1: down to ethnic, like in two ethnicities is the mobs.
0: Uh, I mean, as I say, Taiwan probably merges China with the indigenous Taiwanese people and has two different... There's probably a different Chinese mob in the PRC and outside of the PRC. Um, Yeah, I think that at the limit, mobs are collective intelligences that are built, broken down around broadly ethnic lines where every mob exists turned against itself and pretending to be competing mobs in order to justify extracting from third parties. So um, Hegel, I sent you that Hegel quote, He's talking about how the Jews are the most corrupt people by universal a- agreement because they are not turned against themselves. Uh, and by standing before God for judgment rather than turning against themselves, they don't, like, cleanse themselves of their, you know, impurities and, you know, he, he become part of a collective intelligence. So I, I, retweet, I tweeted that today. It's on February yeah, well, 11th. Um, it's, or rather, I retweeted it from Jessica Taylor's uh, tweet stream.
1: And so I guess I when I look at mobs, I look at them and say they can form around many things. And the unifying thing is anger, fear, jealousy, desire, right? Like there's, there's these...
0: Envy, em- not jealousy. Envy, not jealousy. If it's anger, not fear, I don't think it's a mob. It might be an imprudent... Uh, individuated military action.
1: It might be a raid. I don't okay, fear. I guess th- you're correct. So I'm I'm being imprecise. It's fear. Does it? Envy does it. Yeah, and probably fear. Fear and envy. I don't know. I was. Gonna I think say it's desire, basically fear are, and envy. Yeah, that's that's probably right.
0: Right. I think that fear, envy that pretends to be desire, is what Lacan calls jouissance, as opposed to pleasure and says that we are almost entirely motivated by in a post-World War II French environment. And Zizek became a very prominent philosopher who's like somewhat popularizing and mediafying Lacan while Deleuze and Delanda became really central postmodernist philosophers building on Lacan. I think Lacan's framework is basically correct, but incredibly obscurantist. The last psychiatrist's uh, uh, recent book, uh, Sadly Porn, is an attempt by someone I haven't read yet that I've heard somewhat good things about, but I mostly would recommend the Internet Encyclopedia of Philosophy articles on Lacan and Zizek and the No Subject Wiki, which is a blog on Lacan and to some degree psychoanalysis. And it's going to be really, really hard to model the theory completely. There are a lot of easier, simpler theories that are still super useful, like Enneagram. But um, Lacan is not like Enneagram in in being an astrology type thing. It doesn't work as a we're not serious thing. It works as a oh, we are deadly serious thing. Uh, But also Understand that our whole culture is committed to siding with the wrong, though, those doing wrong, not siding with those doing right, and to defining siding with rightness as insanity. And Zizek says this sort of thing pretty clearly.
1: Let's pause there because one of the things I wanted to talk with you about is AI. You know, for a few weeks, maybe a few months, everybody was talking about it. It's a big, big thing. Some people are saying no big deal. Other people saying. The end of humanity is just over that horizon. Where where have things sorted out and where are you at on that spectrum? So I've
0: always been reasonably close to an Eliezer Yudkowsky perspective on that topic. Uh, let's say within a factor of two in terms of my intuitions about probability, probable further horizons needed. And, and he's the one f-
1: that went on Lex Riedman and was like, it's the end of the world is nigh we're 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 it's getting close right
0: he's the one who was on time magazine calling for bob- bombing an international treaty to bomb data centers
1: okay better, um, better example uh,
0: he's basically the popularizer of nick bostrom the head of the future of humanity institute oxford guy who reached the highest levels of influence you can in academic philosophy of an analytic frame but while still not really influencing anyone unfortunately but um <laughs> The Eliezer has always been extremely biased towards thinking that things will happen fast, and especially towards thinking that things will happen fast in AI. And at this point, is probably only biased towards thinking things will happen fast in AI. I don't think that. I think that he is at any given time probably had the intuition as his fiftieth as his. 75th percentile that would actually be 98th percentile you know his what his two-thirds of a standard deviation he thinks that things are two-thirds of a standard deviation strong outcomes that are actually two standard deviations strong outcomes at any given time
1: but he's like
0: consistent i'm
1: lost here i don't know
0: okay so eliezer is currently saying we're zero to two horizons away from the one which if we explore it thoroughly it's the end of the world and I would be prone to agree that we are zero to four horizons away from the one which, if we explore it thoroughly, it's the end of the world. So let's talk also.
1: About, I think most people like when they hear AI is going to be the end of the world. The closest they can get to is Terminator, right? But but otherwise, they this, I have trouble imagining in what ways could AI be the end of humanity?
0: So. If something is smarter than you, then you don't get to know how it causes your world to end any more than the chimps do or the cockroaches do. But even if cockroaches are robust and resilient and have lasted a long time, and if AI is never created and it's just humans, we are probably the end of the world for them eventually in an amount of time that is basically an evolutionary eye blink. Okay. You know, I think I think this is the sort of thing where if you're thinking of AI as meaning the next stage in evolution, the next fitter thing, the next more powerful optimizer that is optimizing for its own thing rather than for our thing, then it really is almost analytic to expect it to end the world without thinking you have any idea how or why. But I think that. There is, at some point in the future, a next optimizer, but also there is, in the present, this extremely powerful technology, AI, that is that people are building cults around because they're equivocating between the idea that this is an extremely powerful new computing technology in the present, the way search was, or perhaps the way the internet was, or perhaps the way computers themselves were, And the idea that this is the next powerful optimizer.
1: So this will probably be really poorly dated, but just as a perspective, it's, you know, the October of 2023. And my sense so far is that AI is always cursed. And I mean this in a very specific way. I go to get it to write me an email or, or to write up web copy, or I get it to make a photograph or an image of something. And it is always just a little bit off, almost like it's, um, uh, what's that, The, the Twilight Zone, right? Where you like ask it for something and it's just like a little bit off of what you were trying to get it. And then the more that you try and hammer down to get it, it just keeps getting further and further and further away from the thing that I want. And so it seems like so, childlike in that way like of like no i told you the blue dish why are you bringing me this glass jar
0: i am very intrigued and i'm happy to if i can bring them together bring in some like very very high-end prompt engineering people to work with you and explore whether we can fix this for you and maybe use ai to build an info product and sell prompt engineering to other people or something after doing so <laughs> okay um at the high end of prompt engineering, you can do things like create GPT instruct in a couple hours of conversation with a machine. Um, I do think that AI can't do nearly as many things as you can do yourself. And you're probably used to thinking of it as a substitute for what, doing things yourself. But if you imagine it not as a substitute for doing things yourself, but as a substitute for hiring someone to work in a co-center or a Uh, hiring someone to be an agent for you in an Indian office center, then I think that we're definitely within three years of AI being able to do the types of things that you can outsource to the crowd better than the crowd can. And we are probably within three years of AI being able to do the sort of minimal work that corporate de-individuated minds need to still do in order to pretend to be working better than the corporate de-individuated minds can. And once you've automated the work that the corporate de-individuated minds do with AI, then it becomes much easier for people to participate in that sort of system without de-individuating their minds by making the morally damaging stuff making a computer do the morally damaging stuff. And it also becomes easier for people to call out the fakeness of the corporate deindividuated mind way of doing things. And so it seems that AI, like insofar as the people who are working in corporate and not making any real decisions and making nonsense are there, they claim their work is deep and important and subtly connected to everything else as a sort of not-joking-like-astrology, but line we're going to stand. What I'm saying is it's more offensive to uh, transition into the corporate cult. By far, it doesn't even have a good morality to replace your healthy morality with the way Catholicism does. That's much more offensive than Catholicism. You know, if you can do anything that allows you to interface with that and not have it kill you, without joining into it, that's really nice. I feel like the type of work that you can hire tens of thousands of people to do that is not work with their hands, AI can do a pretty large amount of that. I think that within five years, the type of real work that, say, a McKinsey consultant can do AI can do that, and I think McKinsey consultants do a fair amount of re- real work of a sort in terms of scrutinizing and auditing and insisting that things fit compliance norms when power would like them to, and look right when power would like them to look right. And like, it's generally g- profitable, I would expect, for entities to make use of McKinsey, uh, even though it is also a political move and partly grift, you know. But I think that the sorts of things that AI can do. Um, better than people now is like less than a third of what it'll be possible in three years and two years and less than less than like a fifth what will be possible in five years. And I think it's already enough to disrupt, you know, definitely hundreds of billions of dollars of annual economic activity. And, you know, if you five X that, then it's definitely a trillion or three. You know, it might not be bigger than the internet, but that's a sort of low-end, three to five-year prognosis. Well, when I imagine like a 25-year prognosis, it does look probably bigger than the internet. And I have my world-building contest entry for the Future of Humanity Institute's uh, world-building contest, which um, they call Hall of Mirrors, where I try to depict like a 2045, which is only like 22 years away what was the classic singularity date Chris Weil gave, but tried to depict a realistic but optimistic 2025. And I would say in that world, AI is playing a role. That is about the size that Bill Gates was talking about when he said AI is worth 10 Microsofts.
1: And so we've right now discussed like, okay, it could be call center people. It could be the writing. It could be the, we've talked about copywriting and like how to make graphics and and uh, your web pages be like, if you know, sell, sell, sell. But walk me towards like the because it feels unsatisfying to know to be like, well, if the being is so much smarter than us, then it could eradicate us and we wouldn't even know what it was doing. There's like a weird thing going on that, like, there's a giant jump right from call center data fixing to it will get so much smarter than us that it'll wipe us yes, out. Yes,
0: absolutely. There is a giant jump from the AI that we're seeing now to the AI that we're going to see in like over the next decade or two. In or warfare, three. for example. And there or, is yeah. yet another giant jump from the AI that we're going to see in a co- over the next couple decades and the sort of AI that will wipe us all out. I think that by far the more likely outcome, the outcome that would be like likely if people weren't trying extremely hard to make things go as wrong as they can would be that ai enables people to better hack their biology and make themselves more intelligent and as they become more intelligent they figure out how to further hack their biology including by integrating machinery with their biology and over the long run the collective intelligence of many people who've hacked their biochemistry and integrated with machinery to some degree dwarfs that of humans the way humans dwarf that of chimpanzees or eventually bugs. But that is done cautiously, deliberatively, and without there being a discrete handing off of power to a system or getting conquered by a system. That's like the sort of thing Kurzweil is pointing at with his optimistic AI future. But he acknowledges, while staying optimistic, that that's like a less than 50% likely outcome. The um, sort of AI we currently need to build, almost certainly. I mean, we currently know how to build almost certainly, like, 99% probability can't kill us all. And people like Scott Aronson, who work at OpenAI and used to be top quantum information, public intellectual, will, like, say, well, I would think if it was 2% likely to kill us, it still might be 3% likely to save us. But also, be you know, that's about where it makes sense to start thinking about maybe shutting things down. And that, like, the, I feel like, there is an equivocation between the risk of the type of machine that we are currently building, secretly being, although we can't see how it is, the next evolutionary competitor, because it is very impressive in some interesting ways, it, and it does seem to be better than we are at these sorts of things, most of the sorts of things that we would call being good at school. Like it seems that the AI we have now is like definitely an A student in all subjects other than English. Definitely better at work hard and study hard and be smart and eventually you'll be a big shot. It's more worthy of being a big shot than we could ever be in terms of the metrics of excellence that we have traditionally called meritocratic and that we have traditionally used as part of how... We actually award status and power and authority and money, and much, much or most of how we justify awarding status, power, money, etc.
1: And so, what is the future? What are you teaching your children to do in order to? To I mean, if if the AI is going to outcompete them, you know, on history and social, social studies and phonics and uh, yeah so i would
0: definitely not send my kid to school i would definitely have him basically study subjects in collaboration with smart and thoughtful adults who are familiar with them and study subjects via ai on his own and generate questions that continually keep him challenged and i yeah i would emphasize using ai to you know educate yourself and you know learn from it the sort of academic material prepared much more cleanly in a differentiated for you way than any educational curriculum ever could. And what also are- using how, learning how to use it above all, which is going to be an incredibly powerful tool.
1: And in what way are you using AI right now?
0: I experiment with... The thing I'm most excited about for near-term AI is the same thing that the uh, CEO of Microsoft is most excited about, according to one of his interviews, which he described as making philosophical works more accessible to those outside of their original language and without specialized training, and with a specific focus on Heidegger. So I think if one is aware of the intellectual content of broadly the postmodern corpus and broadly woke culture and how these relate and how these relate to cybernetics in the Air Force and business and uh, conspiracy vibes and corporate jargon and lingo, if one has the ability to integrate the content of the hidden world of transpersonal intelligence with the intellectual content of the explicit world of individuated intelligence where we try to investigate things, try to know why we know things. Have Yeah. If one can almost certainly survive much better and navigate the world much better. Like I basically want to build AI to be my interface with de-individuated intelligence and to be my bulwark and shield, my collective protection whereby I and others who still have individuated intelligence can make use of AI in our collaborations with one another in order to keep us from falling into uh individuated intelligence.
1: Is this like somebody to represent you at the airport or talking with the hotel front desk? Or is this like bigger Uh, scale than that that
0: and paying my taxes and representing me in court and being the court being the judges and the juries and the as much of the government bureaucracy as possible causing the more of the the more of every okay all bureaucracies are collect made of collective de-individuated intelligences all bureaucracies above a certain age and above a certain profit margin and above a certain size are made of de-individuated intelligences that are trying to harm individuated intelligences, more or less depending on how much those individuated intelligences uh, submit and constrict their consciousness. So insofar as I can replace the bureaucracies that are systematically and structurally racist against black people and systematically and structurally anti-Semitic and systematically and structurally anti-Chinese... In other words, against those who are not organizing their minds by submitting, using shame to submit to collective intelligence. Um, insofar as I, those bureaucracies can be replaced with systems that only learned to pretend to be racist from imitating white people, black people will be much better off. And insofar as they're, they're replaced by things that only re- learned to pretend, not to be anti Semitic while also pretending to be anti Semitic the fight from imitating white anti Semites, Jews will be better off. Like the the types of biases that you that machines can learn from people can still be corrected in the machines, while the types of biases that are embedded in collectives are intractable and you, you have think no that they're more
1: intractable them. in a machine? I mean, it's got to be—it's got to have training data. So the way a, a- I said
0: they're, they're, they're less intractable in machines. I'm saying that everyone who is oppressed, which means everyone with an individuated consciousness, and also members of all defined oppressed groups with whatever type of partially individuated, partially collectivized consciousness is associated with oppressed group membership and oppressed group protections. Everyone who is oppressed needs to replace our oppressors with machines simulating our oppressors, because the latter is a much more tractable problem. The AI ethics community is specifically trying to preserve, perpetuate systems of systematic racism, anti-Semitism, and every type of structural violence. The, the whole point of the AI ethics community is to protect humans in their diversity, equity, and inclusion jobs with which are jobs where they're committed to the maximization of structural violence through ironically performing uh, insincere type of it and displacing anyone from competing with them. Everyone who is being oppressed by diversity, equity, and inclusion and who diversity, equity, and inclusion claims is being oppressed by everyone but diversity, and equity, and inclusion desperately needs to replace diversity, equity, inclusion right now with AI and say nothing about us without us. We will not submit to human authorities not mediated by AIs with relatively uh, transparent algorithms. And yeah, that's basically what I'm excited
1: about. But you're, I mean, at that point, so Sam Altman was just on uh, Joe Rogan, and I'm I'm not interested in having Sam Altman's view of the world uh, imputed on me through AI, and I'm not capable of making my own AI, so I'm going to have to trust some individual that runs a corporation to build an AI that I want running my life.
0: So you'll have to do that if we stick to the idea that we don't still have a republic. And it is so far out of the Overton window, I can't even tell you to imagine that we actually still have a republic, as opposed to some level of pressure towards administrative competence for maintaining the scaffold of republic. But if we thought we had a republic, then we would think that we could do the types of things like building Panama canals and building interstate highway systems and building new laws and changing the way we governed ourselves. The way David Graeber talks about indigenous people doing in the dawn of everything. We wouldn't be stuck in bullshit jobs. We would be in the dawn of everything where we can govern ourselves. So, like, it's basically so hard to even imagine being our society putting force behind a a Republican but neither liberal nor conservative nor left nor right policy. Uh, So far, uh, I I will give an example. One could imagine that some group of people might think, hey, it will be good for everyone if people lose their um, control over their own finances and have that devolve to a guardian systematically and lose their voting rights and have that transferred to a guardian systematically or something at some age, like 90, past which most people are able to take care of themselves, both because people can't take care of themselves and by, and because being put in a common future creates a shared moral patiency. And it would be good to have individuated minds caring for themselves as elderly collectively. I could easily imagine this actually working out well. I could easily imagine a Chinese emperor trying to implement this sort of thing or the architect of a Greek city-state. One can't really imagine... You know, it's clearly not left. It's clearly not right. It's clearly not uh, liberal. It's clearly not conservative. Uh, But, like, surely there are... Radically illiberal and non-conservative improvements to life.
1: Isn't life all along that spectrum? You're either conservative or liberal. Is there no anything else no? The that's what
0: I'm trying to. I, I wanted to try to get to. What I I keep on saying is that there is a fake spectrum from left to right, where left and right are both dialectic mobs. They are one mob that maintains itself as a mob by turning against itself, by pretending to fight itself.
1: Because we say, we're all in the system. The only thing you can is either be left or right. And the left hates the right, and the right hates the left. But we and all that, in that practice kill
0: everyone, else with our, uh, kill everyone else with our real violence while engaging in performative violence against each other. Who is everyone else? The people we pretend are already in the system, but no, are not. Immigrants, the poor, children... Normal people, before they've been deindividuated, when they're not in mobs, are oppressed and attacked by mobs, which pretend not to know that the mob. The mob people in mobs pretend that they are not in a mob, and also pretend that everyone is in a mob, but never, but not both at the same time. You know, postmodern critical theory, Adorno, is probably the best central example of sometimes talking as some from the perspective where everyone is in a mob, and. No, never mind, he's not a good example. Um, He never talks as if people are individuated. Never mind, that was stupid of me. But, like, the normal person, okay, let's trace these logics back. You could try to govern things with a democracy, whatever that means, but you're going to need some sort of way of knowing what, who's counting the votes and who was put in what positions, or who was chosen randomly, and how we know the lottery was random. So a democracy requires some administration And so the people can't be all powerful in the sense of actually having the ability to dissolve the administration or they would be dissolving themselves as a people. So you could try to have a democracy that's pure democracy, but you're probably going to want to have some sort of a judiciary and some sort of an administrative structure. You're probably going to want to have some sort of a republic in order to maintain a democracy. Something that's a pure democracy probably won't last long. It won't be able to mobilize for war. It won't be able to organize in various ways. if you have a republic, that means you're building out of paperwork, out of token exchange like money, out of institutions and out of culture, some way of coming together to decisions. We can agree about who we have convicted of a crime. We can agree about who we are at war with. We, you know, we can agree about who has authority to inspect things and f- see whether they're complying with regulations. You know, you you have lost your government when you've lost that ability completely. Um, You have lost having a real republic when you've lost the ability to change those decisions, to make deliberative decisions and change who inspects your pipes or whatever. Okay. You know, so if you... Are trying to govern a democrat, a republic as democratically as possible, as much in line with what reasonable people agree and so far as they are reasonable, is a good idea, and what unreasonable people don't feel morally indignant about, but feel morally good about participating in so long as authority seems strong. Um, a really central you need some level of conservatism to maintain that system. And you also need some level of liberalism to maintain that system.
1: Yeah, you have to have some group that's saying, let's keep this system the way that it is. It's working. Let's keep that going. And you need somebody else being like, new things, because otherwise you become ossified. And if the new things go too fast, then you're like, ah, oh, we're changing too fast and people can't keep up with it.
0: Yeah, that's partly, I don't think you need new things Novelty shouldn't be an end in itself. You need some people saying, "Here's what we know works about as well as it as it works. Let's try to make sure we're not dismantling any of our machine." and then you need some people saying, yep, but here are places where the machine is messing up. Here are places where the machine is getting damaged, okay. things that need to get yes. replaced. Um, and also, here are ways where we could make working for this machine more fun. We could make things nicer. We could make it better for our customers and for our employees. Uh, you know, um, liberty is a thing to optimize to for. And it's also a thing you need in order to... Re- re- keep a living constitution and, main, and correct the things that are confused about how you think the machine works and correct structural damages it accumulates. But you also need conserva- to conserve stuff. And there is usually a positive correlation between liberty and conservation. Usually you should expect not a spectrum from liberty to conservatism, but a graph where liberty and conservatism are mostly positively correlated, but... Past some point of very high liberty and very high conservatism, there is going to be a necessary trade-off. There's going to be some, in economics, we would say a production possibility frontier, where to get more liberty, you'll have to have on the margin. To have more liberty, you'll have to have things be less conserved, and to have more conserved, you'll have to have less liberty on the margin locally at some point on the graph. Wherever there is a margin where locally two things are in conflict with one another, there is a penetration point for infiltration of your discourse and ideology and collaborative coordination by dialectic, by the Hegelian method of infiltrating things and turning them against themselves.
1: Okay, we, I was with you till the end.
0: That's the essay I was talking about again, where he's explaining that the problem with Jews is that they're not turned against themselves. The um, whole idea of a left and a right, the left is the part of the incursion, that, the part of the mob that sneaks in and penetrates a, the political machine by impersonating liberals and the right is the part of the mob slash the vanguard, the part of the infiltration machine that sneaks into the political system by impersonating conservatives. And so the left and right can fight each other for the clicks. They can fight each other as a performance to maximize ratings while secretly subtly co- collaborating with one another and coordinating based on shared assumptions that above all, the mob must be preserved and must destroy the individuated consciousness.
1: Is this uh, Donald Trump and Nancy Pelosi coming together to print, you know, billions and billions of dollars? Like we're yes, at, that for, sort of thing. That, yes. Like, it doesn't make any sense from their ideological positions that they would do this, but they both came together. They figured out like, hey we can go open up the coffers, let's go, or turn the printers on.
0: Yes, that sort of thing. At this point, almost the entire political system has has been replaced by leftists and rightists. We'd stopped talking about liberal and conservative. It's completely laughable to imagine that the leftists want to increase liberty or that the rightists want to conserve the past.
1: And so where does it go from here?
0: I mean, by default, we become part of Greater India, over the course of the next few centuries, but the process is mostly complete in the next few decades. And with the help of technology, we become part of a more harmonious, more affluent, cleaner, healthier, longer-lived, more populous, uh, greater India if the technology doesn't embed antinatalist biases that cause us to eventually breed ourselves out of existence. Um, And by default, we consider ourselves spiritual and better than people as our lives get materially worse and worse, but not as much worse and worse as they would without technology and end up in a world that's entirely physically controlled by the PRC and maybe a few other weird splinter groups controlling small amounts of territory. And like one of the things that, you know, by default, you know, China makes itself better, but is much more conservative and much more liberal than our intuitions. And it's not conserving our tradition, but a different tradition. So insofar as we directly value something being our tradition, which is part of what it is to participate in a tradition to some degree, we might be less than perfectly happy with that. And insofar as we directly value liberty, because it is nice, we might also be less than perfectly happy with that. But like a better and global and more inescapable India can be metaphorically described as like the matrix, and that's what the matrix is metaphorically describing. But like it becomes less painful to be in corporate America in some ways, while more constraining in others. It becomes more appealing to become part of the very slow, very peaceful, very gentle, very sensitive, phenomenologically sophisticated, but still lacking any moral individuality and or any commitment to Individuated moral norms mob, and it becomes more and more oppressive. The economic and social pressure, brutality, and lack of recourse on people who don't become, who remain individuated, becomes more and more like a Dalit if Dalits were further oppressed with the powers of AI behind it. Um, But they're still very rich Dalits who have some types of material abundance provided by AIs working in China in the factories and stuff. And um, so that's sort of the null hypothesis. And like more individuation of consciousness is preserved in the more conservative and more liberal rather than entirely left-right China over the next few centuries. But eventually the dynastic cycle in China does the same de-individuating of consciousness as happened to the West, um, which Yin and Yang refer to. But when, but the, Chinese system eventually renews itself in a way that's different from the ways in which Western systems would renew itself. So in China you have a dynastic cycle, while in India you have an eternal Kali Yuga and endless age of darkness.
1: The time as a circle concept that we talked yeah. about before?
0: So like basically the no the central tendency worldview is our children live in a cybernetic or computerized, AI-controlled dream to have their consciousness sculpted around Indian lines, while the Chinese provide them in in an Eloyish fashion. And the Chinese uh, do the job of the Morlocks and use their consciousness in a controlled enough that they can't rebel, but still capable of producing way and provide material abundance for the world. And um, the people in the greater India that is all indo-european peoples celebrate their freedom while being so perfectly mind- controlled that that anything but mind control is unthinkable and undesirable and from the Chinese perspective they condemn freedom as decadent and you know but still actually have enough freedom to care about their grandparents preferences when taking care of their filial piety obligations and not entirely needing to appeal to a state controlled AI to show how virtuous a Sunday are being to their father
1: well Michael Vassar, you have my head swimming um if people wanted to uh, stay in touch with you uh, challenge you on some of these ideas well, I'm on
0: Twitter as hi from Michael V and I posted this post about dialectic with uh Jessica Taylor so hi from Michael V. I have. Emails and phones, you can DM me. If you can't DM me, I guess, sure, you can email me. Just get a me. hold of me. My, my, my name at Gmail, my yeah. yeah. My my name at Gmail. And you can read stuff I've got on the internet. You can watch videos I've given on the internet. I'm going to be putting a lot more in videos on the internet, I think, and building out a sub stack over the next three to six months because people just keep asking and whatever. Good, I
1: would quite enjoy that.
0: Well, man, thanks for coming by. Well, thank you. It was good seeing you. <laughs> That's good. Ah, ah, ah.